Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode nine, I think, of the Woody Off the Cuff podcast. And wow, I'm just going to tell you, I'm recording this a little later in the day than usual. My voice might be a little different because I have been crying like tears of cathartic good feelings for the past few hours. And there's a lot happening inside of me. And so I've got to come share it with you. I just have to help you out here and share all the good news. Um, So basically, today's episode is about, I don't know what I'll call it yet, either the power of love or something about trauma and a new type of disease or disorder, maybe both. But what I'm going to do today in what will admittedly possibly be a long episode is really blow your mind about how human emotion works and the purpose of life and how to feel good. I genuinely think that my research and personal work has caught me onto some things that are not being said or taught in the world, even by standard practitioners of mental health, even by a lot of coaches, and certainly not in any type of societal institution. And that said, I always approach my work not as an expert teaching, but as a pioneer sharing what I see. So rather than picturing me as having all the evidence and all the this and that, and I know everything, and I wrote the book on this, although I did write the book on this, but um, rather than seeing me as lecturing or teaching, I want you to know that I am just telling you what's in front of my face. I have no agenda except that I feel so good that I can't help but share this information. And my alternate agenda is by sharing with you, it solidifies feelings and beliefs in me. And so I mentioned before on this podcast that I often share things for myself because sharing them with you gets it off my chest, it creates a connection, and it leads to enhanced well-being in me. And so just by making this, it's enhancing my well-being And I know it will probably help you too. So anyway, that's the bullet points. The short version today is I'm going to show you how to find love and happiness. I'm going to show you a new thing I'm calling the human disease, like the disease that's stopping us. I'm going to put it in a disease type genetic model. I'm going to make scientific statements out of my, um, this is a PG podcast. I'm going to make some statements that sound scientific that are not peer validated, but I'm going to do that because I'm a very logical thinker. And so I'm going to put things in a model and I will trust you to think your scientific brain and review them. But I'm going to talk scientifically about some things that are scientifically proven, some things that are scientific theory, and some things that are just, I've had such a vivid experience. I'm like an explorer on Mars breathing in the air. And the scientists are saying, oh, well, here's what you need to know about Mars. And I'm over here doing all this therapy, doing all this emotional work. And I'm like, no, I'm on Mars. I'm touching the planet. I can tell you exactly how it feels and exactly what's happening because I am literally here experiencing it firsthand. And if you know me, you know that I value case study firsthand experience as the best kind of experience because it is so rich and nuanced. So anyway, enough jibber jabber. Let me start by just telling you about my day, and then I'll move into some science and some scientific theories from other people, and then into Woody's super big scientific, Woody thinks that they know everything type of model. Um, So today, right, 
I went to a trauma therapy appointment. I've actually been going for exactly a year now. I think my first session was December of last year. And back when I published my book in June, it one thing, I've mentioned this before, but my awesome editor, Sarah Loy, challenged me on a part of my book, and it was about trauma therapy. And I had written this section like, oh, you should get a talk therapist, you should ask your doctor about medication and listen to your doctor, you should do this and that. And by the way, everyone also needs trauma therapy. Like, every single person needs this thing. It's called trauma therapy. It's where you move your eyes using EMDR techniques or brain spotting techniques, and we all need it. And I made a pretty blanket statement that every human being in the world could benefit from this therapy. And Sarah left me a kind comment on that draft of my book and said, Woody, I'm glad this worked for you, but that probably doesn't apply to everyone. It sounds like it's personal to you that you have some issues. And so I think you should either take this out or provide more evidence. And I said, I'm not taking this out. I'm like the explorer, the astronaut on Mars, feeling the dust, saying, this is vital. Like, this is the answer. I know what's going on because I am here feeling it. And so instead, I enhanced the argument in my book to make a few arguments for why we all have trauma. And there is a whole field about this. And if you're not informed about it, you can just search up trauma therapy. And I can recommend some good Instagrams for you. I can recommend podcasts. If you just search trauma recovery, trauma therapy, EMDR, brain spotting, you'll find that this stuff is scientifically validated in the sense that moving your eyes around and feeling your somatic feelings, meaning the feelings in your body, is extremely beneficial to your health and that it works pretty much across the board, you know, although every case is different. So anyway, that's my way of saying I'm still doing this for a year And my opinion of this type of therapy continues to grow. If you said, Woody, you got a grant for $100 million, what are you going to do in the world? I would put at least half of it. Maybe half would go to humanitarian aid just because people are literally dying and need it. But the other half would go to proactive establishing trauma therapy for as many people as possible who need it or who want it. Everyday people, people of extreme, victims of extreme problems, people in everyday life. I would put all the money I could spend on that, what wasn't needed for immediate humanitarian aid. And I think in order for our society to move forward, we have to put some money and some energy into proactive things. We can't just give away everything we have to aid. Otherwise, we'll just be stuck in the same vicious cycles. You know, so anyway, that's how strongly I believe in specifically trauma therapy. Now, I also have a talk therapist, and I have been with the same talk therapist off and on for almost five years now. We started in early 2018, and we still do things that are amazing, but the more we talk, the more they're about traumas from the past and establishing a new version of me, and the less they're about ticky-tack day-to-day issues. And so I see a pattern in my life that the past really has informed how I am now. And so I just want to set the stage for that, that I've been doing this work for a year and I am just blown away. And again, not in terms of measuring too many specific numbers, but my life is absurdly better than it was 18 months or 24 months ago. I consider summer of 2020 as when I really started this recovery journey. 
Um, and then a little later, I found a trauma therapist and stuff like that. But I cannot describe. I put this in my book that I published six months ago because it had been a year of this amazingness that this recovery mindset, which is what I call it, this mindset of I've got to recover from my trauma at all costs and prioritize that above everything else always, it is mind-blowingly helpful. It is just the world to me. It is everything. And so I just stand by it a million percent. And so back to the story. I go to my trauma therapy today and I am working with my therapist and we do the same things we normally do. We talk, I talk about my day for about, or my last two weeks for about um, 10 minutes, just kind of giving an update and talking myself through what got me through my feelings. And then I talk about the feelings in my body and where they feel in my chest, in my face, in my neck. And I express that to my therapist. We kind of play with them. We do some calming activities. And then for about 30 or 40 minutes, I stare at a pointer at a specific point of the screen, which we move around to find the right spot. Because yes, when your eyes are looking in different places, different parts of your brain are being activated. Go look up the science. It's there. Um, so I'm doing this and I'm staring at this pointer and feeling feelings and kind of talking about it, but also kind of just feeling feelings. And as usual, I feel all this movement in my body and all this emotional sensation and it's in my chest and it moves up my neck. And then I have this thought, oh, it's like I'm being pointed at, like I'm being judged, like I'm not safe. And I play with that feeling and I explore it. And by the end of my therapy, I'm more comfortable and I've realized that in this case, there's a specific spot in my chest that feels like everyone is pointing at me and looking at me and my chest is just so raw and sensitive and I'm so scared and I feel like I'm a loser or something. But now I'm seeing it and feeling it in real time and noticing that that's not the case anymore, if it ever was the case. And my body doesn't need to feel that way. And all these feelings have jumbled around. And I know that I have this desire to feel connection. In fact, what happened in my visualization in this therapy is I told my therapist, I've got this spot in my chest. It feels like I'm in a circle of people. I'm in the middle and they're all jeering at me. Specifically when I think of being a beginner at something. So I have learned a lot about mental health, but I'm still a beginner at podcasting and Instagram and social influencing business models. I still don't really earn from that because I'm just learning. And I felt so embarrassed to just be starting. Or another thing that I feel so embarrassed about, the same feeling, is anything related to my gender identity and being queer and being non-binary. That if I explain it to anyone or talk about it, I just get this feeling that there's a circle of people looking at me jeering, saying, you're weird you're a loser, you know, and it becomes a physical feeling. Like, you know, if you were actually in a circle of people who were jeering at you, I bet you'd feel a large amount of shame, guilt, embarrassment, like dripping down your neck, down into your body, you know? Have you ever felt that? Well, that's what I've been feeling every time I go up against one of these triggers, and I don't think it's unusual for people. This is why I think this trauma therapy is so universal, and I'll get into it, is um, that we all have these embarrassing moments, and they stick with us, 
and then we just get stuck in so much fear. I mean, you'd have to be pretty wild to look me in the eye or perhaps look my podcast screen in the eye and say you've never felt embarrassed or humiliated about anything, that there's not some of that still stored in you, that there's not fear of judgment stored in you that gets activated. It does. It does in all of us. And that's why we got to work it out. So here's the crazy thing that happened in my therapy that I just really want to live document. I'm talking to my therapist, and by the end of the session, it's about 12.50, and we're going from 12 to 1, and I know it's wrapping up. And what I came to the realization is, you know, my therapist said, Woody, what would you do in this situation, right? What does your body want to do when you're being jeered at like this? And I thought, well, number one, I just want to not feel anything and not be there. And I told her how I used to just zone out with like video games or TV or whatever and just hide from all my social fears. But that doesn't work for me anymore because doing all that was just ruining my life with, you know, addictive tendencies and screen time. And so then I thought, well, I don't want to run away either. I don't want all these people to be jeering at my back and looking at me and judging me and thinking, oh, Woody's messing up. They're no good. And so I thought, and I was feeling my body and feeling, huh, what do I want to do? Like, what is my instinct when I feel this way? And I realized my instinct is I just wanted to go up to all these people jeering at me and shake their hand and say hi and say I loved them anyway and walk around and shake everybody's hand and then leave and be like, we're all good, but I'm going to, you know, go over here. And there was something so key about the idea of facing up to the people I was afraid of or the feelings I was afraid of and shaking their hand and saying, I think it's going to be okay. And I think you'll be okay even if you don't worry about me. And I realized it was all related to this fear of people worrying about me, that I felt under a microscope, you know, that I was affecting other people just by existing negatively. And then I told my therapist something really really important, which is, I I feel like I want to be a dog for a day. And this was such a funny realization, because I go on the record a lot as saying, I don't want to be anyone else for a day. If you told me I could be Steph Curry for a day, it might be cool to shoot a basketball in a hoop really well, you know, Steph Curry or LeBron. I feel like basketball is a fun sport because it's not as physical as football, but it's still like really cool and popular. And you know, I'm not a soccer fan. I know people most way around the world would say they'd want to be Messi or Ronaldo or whoever. But um, for me, it'd be like Steph Curry. But I don't want to be Steph Curry. I also don't want to be like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. I don't want to be any of my friends. I don't want to be Pritha. I just want to be me. And I'm very happy as me. But I'll tell you what I realized today If I could just be like a really well taken care of dog for a day, a house dog, I would do it for a day. I would love to. And I just felt this strong inclination. Why do I want to be a dog? What is it about being a dog that sounds so good to me? And I realized it's that dogs are allowed to love people regardless of what else is going on. Like when you see a dog, you automatically cheer up. If you've had a bad day at work, your dog cheers you up. If you've had a good day, your dog makes you feel better. And you can expand this to pets, you know, of any kind, if there's a different type of pet you like. But for me, it's my dog, Willie. And I realized that I would love to be a dog because then I could just give love unconditionally all the time 
and no one would tell me that wasn't okay. Wow. And so I realized that somehow as a human, I must have been given the internal message that loving when something was wrong wasn't okay. And I think we've all been given that message. And when I say love, you know, that's an interesting topic to delve into. What is love? What does it mean? How is it like? But let me continue with my story and then I'll get back into this love and I'll give you a couple explanation for what it means and what it's like. So I go to this therapy and by the end of it, 12.55, I'm recording this about 5 o'clock p.m. So it's been about four hours since then. But I am done with this therapy. Oh, and I've got a plane in the background, which you guys may hear a little buzzing from, but I'll pause for a second. So as I was saying, I'm done with my therapy and my therapist says to me, Woody, just be really gentle, you know, because you're still kind of in the middle of this. You're still having all these feelings. And a lot of times what happens in this trauma therapy is I end up crying a huge, good, cathartic release. But here I hadn't had it yet. I'd kind of left on this idea of wanting to feel like a dog and give love, but still having this huge loser feeling or something like that, like being stared at and jeered at and humiliated. And I've always had that feeling inside of me. And so... What happens next is my body just knew what to do. I went upstairs and I was really stuck on this dog idea. And I had watched some show that I really recommend on Netflix called Explained. And I think in 2019 or 2020, they had an episode on Dogs Explained. It's 20 minutes, you know, it's a 20 minute episode about dogs. How do dogs work? Why do they exist? What are they like? And I remembered loving this when I watched it a couple years ago or a year ago. So I pulled up, I went and petted my dog Willie and told him I loved him and noticed, I noticed in my relationship with my dog, there's not the same tension as I have with humans. There's not being judged. There's not anything. Neither of us judges the other. You know, I had, um, when I had my other puppy Daphne, who I had to rehome because she couldn't get along with Willie. She was a nightmare. I mean, she pooped everywhere in the house. She peed everywhere. I've still got pee stains in my carpet that I couldn't get out. She was the hardest dog I've ever seen to take care of. And I still probably got more out of it than it cost for the year I had her. As much trauma, and I've talked about it, that I went through with her. And when she, you know, bit Willie, man, just holding a dog and having that love. It's, I mean, I haven't had a child yet, but man, it really feels like it to me. It is just so wonderful. And so I thought, huh, how can I understand my relationship with my dog better so that I can understand love better without this extra variable of human social worry and human interaction? How can I understand just this being-to-being love response and then reapply it to being human? So as you see, I am really a pioneer here. I'm not like a statistical scientist who goes and does all the samples and all the data, But I think logically, and I isolate variables. And in this case, I realized, hmm, my relationship with my dog has this unconditional love that's so safe and comforting, and my relationship with humans, except maybe Pritha some of the time, don't have this. So let me isolate what's so good about a dog. And so I watched this episode of Dogs, and it was so enlightening. This episode of Netflix's show Explained, Dogs episode, season three, I think. And 
they talk about dogs and how people have had dogs all throughout time and how people bred dogs, bred wolves to be less and less aggressive, and they took the least aggressive wolves and bred them more. And eventually they had dogs and dogs could do certain things. But what they said is that dogs have a specific gene for openness. And dog researchers recently have found the genome comparing dogs and wolves. And the key genetic difference is that dogs have a gene for openness, which includes openness for love and openness for affection. So dogs can actually be affectionate and they want to be around people and they want to express themselves and they want to be social and they want to be engaged. You know, like all dogs love being social with you know, with humans, like at least with the one they're bonded with. Even if they're really afraid, they'll have one human they like. Dogs literally can't help but like humans. They're made that way. And I think humans are also made to love other humans, right? We're also made that way with our babies and our children and our families and our tribes because we're meant to keep each other safe and love each other just the way dogs and humans do that. But I'm watching this dog's video And they give the best, cutest explanation of love I have ever seen. So I'm going to give you the Netflix dogs dogs video thing narrated by Jake Gyllenhaal explanation of love. Shout out to all the Swifties out there. Um, But what they said, they said, well, here's how they learned that dogs love humans. They said a scientist in 2017 trained dogs to go into an MRI machine And they saw dogs' brains activate with happy chemicals just as much with their humans as with hot dogs and other really good rewards. And so dogs were just lighting up, wanting to go to their humans. They did studies that showed that dogs could empathize with humans, that if a person was sweating and it was fearful sweat, like watching a scary movie and sweating, the dog smelling that sweat in a test tube, no joke, would lower its tail and retreat. Whereas a dog smelling happy sweat with someone watching like the Jungle Book or something, would the dog would be all excited and wag. And so dogs can empathize. And the way Netflix told us is they said dogs do service like service dogs. Dogs empathize. Dogs are loyal. Dogs like us more than hot dogs. And those are four really great traits that would go on this love checklist. But the feeling of love that they said that I thought they just explained it nail on the head, like that's what love feels like, is they said that dogs and humans are capable of feeling a sense of connection that is so deep that it makes everything else feel less important. Love is a sense of deep connection that feels so good and so soothing that everything else feels less important. And I would add that when I feel that love connection, whether it's with my dog, whether it's with a person, whether it's with myself, when I feel those chemicals move in my brain and I feel love through whatever cognitive system, whatever chemicals are going on, I not only feel like everything everything else is less important, but I feel like even though it's less important, I can handle it and I want to handle it and I'll handle it better. And there are plenty of studies that show that happy people do better and that people, you know, with social support do better and all this. So this is not like rocket science. But my point is I've really been isolating this feeling of love, this unconditional love, this love that is like, I just feel so close to you and so good and the world is less important, but I'm still going to take care of it. 
And this is crucial because there are all these drugs in the world. Like you could say, well, Woody, if I wanna feel like everything else is less important, why don't I just shoot some heroin, right? Or why don't I drink six beers or six shots, you know? And the answer is that when we take external drugs, it has all these negative consequences that cause our life to become disordered. That's why being an alcoholic is called alcohol use disorder in this diagnostic and statistic manual that psychologists and psychiatrists use. It's because if you're drinking all the time, you may not feel like anything else is important, but you're also going to be miserable. You're going to have diminishing returns with the drug itself, and the rest of your life is going to go to crap. I'm trying to stay PG, right? Like, So if you're addicted to a substance, we all know that we keep getting more and more resistant to that external substance. We need more and more of the substance to satiate our desire to get high. And then we can never think about anything but the substance. It distracts us from life and we are miserable and we're essentially non-functional. That's why addiction is such a horrible disease. But I notice that when I'm feeling unconditional love, it's a similar high in that there are chemicals in my brain making me feel soothed and relaxed and good. But instead of feeling like I'm resistant to it, I just feel like it comes easier each time. I'm just bathed in it more each time. As I've done this trauma therapy, it's become easier and easier for me to produce the feeling of being soothed. And so in fact, as I heal, it's not like I'm developing a tolerance to feeling love and ooh, more love will make me make it harder to feel love. It's the opposite. And I'm not telling you this part as a statistically verified mass studying scientist. I'm telling you it as an explorer who has felt it in every bit of my body, monitoring my own brain, self-feeling, somatically telling you that undisputably, the more of this love I feel, the more I can access, the better things get. And guess what? Humans and dogs have this too. Humans and dogs make each other better which is why we love each other so much. And scientists in this Netflix show, they have some cute thing that they highlight from a study. It's a interspecies mutually induced positive oxytocin-based feedback loop or something like that. It's essentially, even though I'm a human and my dog's a dog, we both look at each other. We both feel soothed. We both feel comforted. Now, statistically, we know for certain that mothers and infants who are just born have this connection. That actually oxytocin as a chemical, which is this love chemical that they say is often related to love, is actually a chemical designed to stimulate childbirth. And actually sometimes if a mother is having trouble with childbirth, she will be administered directly some oxytocin um, to move the childbirth along because uh, it actually moves, makes the uterus contract or it makes whatever, makes babies happen basically. And so scientists know that. But what's amazing is that no matter how hard we try to isolate drugs that are going to shoot into our veins and make us feel better, the natural version is just so much better. And I'm on mental health medication. I'm on a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and it really helps. But I felt all this lovely love hormones and all this stuff, and yet I just can't go shoot some love hormones. You know, like it wouldn't be the right solution for me to just shoot these all the time. You know, I'm saying shoot like as in like heroin or something. But all I have to do is pet my dog and I can feel it. And so I hope this anecdote so far is at least expanding your view 
of how much your own brain can change over time. If you had told me I could feel so much love and so much belonging in the world and I'd be out making a podcast and coming out as gender non-binary and running a business and asking for help and publishing a book and still struggling to earn traction with my book and do all these risky things, you know, and my relationship would be so good and, and not be doing stupid screen time stuff all the time anymore. I would have said, you're crazy. And yet now I feel like I'm just at the beginning. I just see this vast world of love and happiness and belonging. And it's not an idea. It's something I'm seeing because I'm on the path and I can see it. It's like I've crested the mountain and I've done all this work to get out of the woods. And now I just see this beautiful terrain ahead of me. Just so much love and belonging and happiness and well-being for myself and all the people in my life. And it comes at no cost. It's just free and I can have it and I can walk into it. And I'm letting you know that recovery mindset and trauma therapy and facing our issues of the past and the emotions they've created is the way, at least for me. I can't tell you I know everything in the world, but I can tell you that if you want to walk in my path, wow, have I seen results. Wow. And I don't even have to sell them to you. I'm just telling you about it. You can go engage whatever things you want. You know, if you buy my book or my service is great, but wow, you got to try this stuff in some shape or form. So I got a little bit more to say. I went through this dog video and I cried so much. And again, I felt it like just you ever had a good cathartic cry. I cried immensely and deeply because I felt I just want to go love the world the way a dog loves the world. I wish I was just allowed to do that. And I cuddled my dog and it was just the best. And then I had the thought, well, What's different about this between humans, you know? How does this work between humans? Do we have the same thing? Like, why are we all fighting and anxious all the time, you know? Because I would say on average, human baby interactions and human dog interactions are much better than human adult interactions. Like, why is this? Why can't human adults activate this same love stuff that we can with our babies and our dogs? Is it really just that we don't have baby eyes and so we can't feel love for each other? I don't think so. I'm not buying that because I've felt love with other adult humans plenty of times. I just know that there's this huge thing blocking it. And so that brings me to the second part of this episode. I told you it would be a little longer, but this is the science that I think will blow you away. And I think it's accurate. I couldn't stand up for it more. I have seen it play out in my life in such a vivid way that even with just the case study of myself, I'm telling you, this is... Not indisputable, because I don't have the statistical evidence, but it is indisputable in my life, and maybe it's worth you exploring this viewpoint and trying it on for yourself. And that is the viewpoint of life as recovering from the disease of inherited trauma. So trauma people have all kinds of words for this. There are recovery groups for inherited trauma that have all kinds of words for this. Um, They call it family trauma or you know, dysfunction trauma or whatever. But I want to be clear, I'm not calling out any specific family or people or institutions. I actually think that as a human society, all of us have this, that nobody grows up in a trauma-safe environment. And so my theory for you, which I am now going to back up with some science and some woody brain logic and pioneering in my life, is that 
all humanity still has the disease of legacy inherited trauma, which is our bottleneck for well-being and societal improvement, and that we all go essentially undiagnosed and then pass it on to our kids because we've never retrieved the treatment, the treatment for the disease of inherited trauma. And I would say that the solution is to recover from your own trauma through trauma therapy and then to not pass that to your children. And there are trauma therapists who teach this. But I want to tell you, I, I want to bring in, this is where I'm going to get pseudoscientific and bring in some scientific terms, but use some stuff I'm coining to say how I understand it. So I'll be clear about that. There are a couple of scientific terms, you know, that revolve around the debate of nature versus nurture. And have you ever heard that? You know, what makes a person the way they are? Is it nature? Is it nurture? You know, is it the gene exact genetic coding we're born with that we just happen to be developing as a little fetus and then came out with and we're just the way we are? Or is it any type of little person raised in a certain scenario can be very different it, or can be the same if they're in that scenario, regardless of genetics. So I know you've heard this. This is a good starting place. Is nature versus nurture, right? And sometimes I was taught in science class that the interaction of these two things, i.e. the combination of your nature with your environment, is called epigenetics, which is your genetics in the environment. But I would like to coin a specific thing I'm calling actually a disease, and who knows if this is right or not technically, but it works in thinking. It works in practice, which is why I call it that. I'm happy to be corrected by scientists on the technicalities, but I know it works for me to think of it this way. Is the disease of inherited trauma as whether it's an epigenetic thing or whether it's its own special disease that we are not treating? I want to talk to you about this for a second, okay? Here's how I think about my nature versus nurture. And family, I love you all. I'm just talking generally about nature versus nurture. No specific shots being fired at parents for sure. I love my parents. I would say, for example, that I have a nature that is a decent amount like my dad. It's, um, it is a little anxious. It's very cerebral. It's very sensitive, very empathetic, very caring. It's very deep thinking. It's very logical thinking. I just, you know, there are some parts of me where I just look and I say, yep, I'm my dad. By the way, pro tip, we all turn into our parents. We just do. And it's for all these reasons. But I'm like, yep, I'm like my dad. And similarly, I have this kind of loving energy that's like this kind of more almost the dog wagging energy or the super friendly energy. Actually, both my parents have this, which is like the desire to approach people and be nice to them. Because my mom has, um, has this nature where she just wants everyone to be happy. And she's just so outgoing. And if you look at her Facebook right now, she's off hiking some trail. And she's taking pictures with strangers. And she's having the time of her life. And anyone she sees, she just wants to talk to and help and be nice to. And my dad is more introverted. But he is the kind of person who would go to tennis tournaments and there'd be like a famous tennis coach sitting there in Florida at some small tennis tournament. And he just walks right up to him and talks to him. And he's just as curious to pick their brain. And he doesn't care that they're a famous tennis coach and he's just a random person. You know, he's going to walk right up and talk to him. And he's just 
likes to talk to people in that way, likes to approach them and make conversation and say things that'll get a reaction. And I'm like both of my parents in that way. So I would say that is a genetic trait, like my openness, my dogginess. I think both my parents have that. And I'm really grateful to have that from them. And then there might be more like, you know, other traits that aren't as helpful to get from my parents. Like I have, you know, IBS and anxiety, and I get that from my dad, I'm sure. And, you know, just genetically, we're both a little bit that way. And then there's environmental things, right? Like the home I grew up in, my parents' relationship, you know, the school, the, um, you know, general stuff like that, like the church, the city, the town. There's all these environmental things I grew up in. But what I've noticed is that generally my environment and my genetics, neither of those have quite been able to capture why I struggle so much with certain things or why I have a hard time in life. Because, and I used to go tell my therapist this, you should sit back in. I wish I had the recordings. They don't record therapy sessions because that's probably against the law or something, but um, they don't record mine at least. But I would go in 2018 And when I first went to therapy with my therapist, I still see now, I would talk to her and I would say, oh, like, you know, I don't understand why I'm having such a bad reaction. My therapist would say, Woody, it sounds like you've had some serious trauma in your life. You are so anxious and you are so worried about what people think of you. Excuse me, little burp. You are so anxious, Woody, that... Are you sure you weren't abused? Like, were you like molested? Were you this or that? She didn't put it that way. She put it much more delicately than that. And I told her, no, like I wasn't abused. I wasn't molested. I wasn't this or that. I had a good upbringing. Yeah, my parents got divorced at some point, but both my parents loved me. Both my parents have always said they want the best for me. My grandparents always wanted the best for me. And all the people in my life were nice, and I've had a privileged upbringing, you know, growing up as a white guy in America, in Kentucky. I've had, a, my college got paid for, you know, my grandpa grandpa bought me a car, so I, I like still drive the car that my grandpa bought me, you know. I've got so much privilege, and so many, I was like prom king, and I was tennis captain, and I did all this good stuff. And I said, you know, and like, yeah, some of it's a little genetic, but like, why am I so crazy. Like, that's what I was asking my therapist. And she didn't know either because she was like, well, what you're telling me is that your life is pretty normal. And yet I was a wreck. I mean, in 2018, I was, you know, going into work and just having panic attacks over emails and meetings. I was so scared of every social interaction. I'd replay it 20 times in my head. I would, you know, I would break down in tears of fear. I would struggle to communicate with Preetha and get upset. I would throw temper tantrums. I mean, I really had deep anxieties that I'm just now coming out of. And I could not point to either the genetics or the environment as the cause. And I wonder if that's not the case for you too. I wonder if you don't say, huh, like my, you know, parents liked me. I don't have any extremely severe genetic disorders. I am, and by the way, if you have a severe genetic disorder, that's okay too right? Like we need help and we need trauma therapy with our environment and with our genetic disorders. Like obviously these things play a, play a part. But for me, it was just so clear, huh? I cannot figure out why I have so many problems because it shouldn't be happening this way. 
it shouldn't be happening like this based on my genetics, which are smart and good, or my, um, or my environment. And I just didn't know. And so I got on medication, I did therapy, but I was still confused for all these years until really this year, maybe a little bit in last year. And I was going to ask, like, don't you feel that way to some extent? That it's like you have more anxiety than you should, that you really probably have enough to eat if you're listening to this. Not everybody does, but you probably have enough food on the table and you probably have some level of security in your life and you probably are in good enough health that you're alive and listening to this, although you may be in failing health, you may, you know, be experiencing food insecurity, but the majority of us usually are in okay health and okay security and still have extreme anxiety, depression, and disorders. That is the logical point I want to make before I go into some woody science here. And I think it's really clear, right? And for me, again, my genetics, smart, friendly, my environment, friendly, good upbringing, nothing's perfect, but generally a good upbringing, privileged, you know, not exposed to too many terrible things, well-parented, and I'm acting crazy, and I'm stressed, and I'm unhappy. So, okay, I've belabored that point enough. Here's what I think it is. I've got the answer now, and then I've got the scientific theory to explain healing from the answer and a little wrap-up about love. The answer is, in addition to our genetics and our individual upbringing, we also receive something that I call, oh, what do I want to call it? Like legacy trauma or inherited trauma, which is a biological, deeply rooted feeling of unsafety that is passed down from parent to child and lasts throughout generations just like a genetic disorder would. So let me repeat that again. I know there are trauma people out there who would agree with this, I am kind of going loosey-goosey with my own spin on it and my own way of explaining. But again, what I'm saying is inherited trauma is when someone is afraid, they become traumatic, and then they imbue that in their child. And my argument here, and my personal firsthand certainty that this is true, and the science backs it up, is that it happens to all of us. So let's give an extreme example first of an extremely abusive parent abusing a child. Now, I could cite many studies that show that people who are abused are more likely to become perpetrators of abuse themselves. We all know this. People who were, you know, sexually abused as a kid, more likely to become sexual abusers as an adult. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. That's my understanding. But again, I'll publish notes, I'll edit, I'll recorrect if I'm wrong on this. I'm just assuming that because I've heard it so many times. So fair game there on the science. Um, and so you might think, yeah, well, that makes sense, right? Because someone, well, first, actually, you might think it doesn't make sense. Let's think about this logically, right? It actually doesn't make logical sense. If you are abused, why would you want to pass that on to someone else? If it's ruining your life and making you miserable and just generally causing like awful pain to you, why in the world would you go and do that to someone else? Now, again, this is kind of a rhetorical, you know, straw man question I'm putting up to explain why. I'm not blaming people who become abusers because of abuse. In fact, I don't blame anyone for anything. I set boundaries and believe that people need to be locked up if they're murderers or if they're dangerous. But, you know, I don't blame people for their behaviors anymore because I think it's all a result of this legacy trauma. 
So you might say, why is this trauma survivor then passing it on to other people? Why are they acting that way? And the answer is because when you experience that deep of an emotional or physical trauma or something, your midbrain, your like survival brain gets this hypervigilant, this crazy level of stimulation and your logical brain isn't working anymore. It's just not functioning. And what you do is you just propagate that down to all the people in your network. And we all know that humans take their feelings and push them on other people and other people empathize with them and then integrate those feelings. And we also know that because our purpose of life biologically is to survive the strongest imprintations on all beings, including humans, are the negative survival threatening ones. That means that if I have a positive experience with my parent and they are the best parent ever, and the next day I have a really negative experience and I think they're going to beat me or molest me, I'm going to remember the negative one much more vividly. And it, I might not ever recover from that, even if I have a hundred more positive experiences. Okay? That if I don't actively take the cure for that, then I'm not going to recover. And so expanding that argument, right, you now see why abusers, abuse creates abusers, you know, and hurt people hurt people. I think we are all hurt people hurting people, but we can heal. And it's not just, you might think, oh, well, just like you, Woody, I wasn't beaten as a child. I wasn't molested. And if you were, obviously, I hope you'll seek out therapy and seek out all these trauma resources. But even if you weren't, you got to keep listening because humans, get this, humans now have the ability, and we always have, this is kind of, I think, our downfall in some ways, we have the ability to create unsafe survival situations even when it doesn't relate to actual physical survival. So what I mean is, as a human, when I was... There was this one time that I was at an, I will remain unnamed, you know, kids party or something. And like all the other kids ended up laughing at me over something. And I just felt so upset. And you remember that feeling I said of being everyone in a circle laughing at me and poking fun at me? Like that's evoking this memory, you know, of being laughed and made fun at, right? That that goes into me. And that stays in there. And that would be an example of an environment is that I may never recover fully from a kid that, um, that made fun of me and traumatized me and made me feel unsafe. Because even though they didn't threaten to kill me, I felt socially unsafe. And as a human, I know that social connection is key to my survival. And so my brain says, uh, that's just like as if a leopard is about to rip my face open because I'm socially unsafe. To my brain, it's the same thing, stores the same survival instinct, and then I'm terrified of social situations from then on, right? So it can happen from everywhere. But here's the crazy thing. The vast majority, and again, oh my God, so much love to my parents. Please do not take offense at this. This is just the science. The, the majority of what I think I experience and all of us do is we take it from our parents. And what's crazy is untreated. If I had been made fun of as a kid, and I felt that embarrassment, then when my kid did something, I might make fun of them in the same way. I might pass on that same distorted traumatic feeling. And it's not going to be as direct as it is going to be when it happens to you directly. 
So if I'm tracing things back, right, I might be able to come out of denial about, oh, actually so-and-so in middle school bullied the crap out of me and it made me feel bad and I need trauma therapy because I feel like scared every time I walk into a social situation. But it's more nuanced to realize that when my dad was a primary school kid getting picked on for being short, which he is, you know, that's not a judgment. He's just a little shorter, so he got picked on by the teacher. He told me a time, I hope he doesn't mind me sharing, where the teacher picked on him for being small and short. And I can tell you, he's got a response to like being picked on, you know? And some of that gets projected into me and all throughout all my interactions with him, I'll pick up a little bit of that. Or my mom has a little bit of just feeling like she's not doing enough to please people. And so that's imbued into me because I pick it up from her and every interaction I've ever seen her have, there's just this little bit of she's inherited from her parents or from her situation or from her society that she needs to be there for everyone all the time, you know? And again, both of these things come from good-hearted places. If my dad feels like he needs to stand up for himself and be a little antagonistic, it's because he needed to defend himself from, you know, whatever teacher was bullying him unfairly. But now I pick up on that and I become bristly and antagonistic, even without knowing his story. Isn't that crazy? I, I know that story now because he told me recently, but without knowing his story, I can still develop the trauma reaction. And that's why I call this the disease of inherited trauma, is just like if you had a disease that can be passed down from parent to child, inherited trauma is passed down from parent to child, and it builds, and you get the whammies. You know, my, uh, my mother-in-law, Priya, has this word for like genetic challenges that come from your parents that are called whammies. You know, like, like Priya has weak wrists, so she's worried my wife, Preetha, has weak wrists. You know, like that's a whammy for Preetha. She's got weak wrists because that's in her genetics. Um, what I would say is that we also get all of our parents' genetic, and all of our caretakers, everyone close to us, we get their help, sure, but we also get exposed to their inherited trauma whammies or their inherited trauma disease. So every time we interact with a person in a negative way, we have not just the interaction, which probably works out okay, you know? Like if I'm really worried about, let's say we're in a hurry for to get to church and my mom's like, Woody, come on, you gotta get to church on time. You know, in middle school, Woody is like, oh, why do I have to be scolded for this? And my mom's maybe overdoing a little bit to please my granny or whatever it is, you know? All in good faith, all in good hearts, but it's a little traumatic to me. And, you know, I even lost my train of thought. My, my point, I guess, is just that it gets passed down. And even if I don't know what's happening, even if being rushed into the church building isn't a big deal. So what if I'm rushed and I gotta, and I, my mom's a little mad because my pants are wrinkly, you know, like, so what? I can tell you right now that my mom didn't actually care if my pants were wrinkly and that I didn't really care if she scolded me. We were okay. But somehow some trauma or some shared like fear is transmitted in there. Fear of being judged, fear of not looking good enough, fear of not being enough that came from my mom, from her mom, from her mom or her dad or her parents or whatever. Because at some point, somebody decided we should be judged for how we wear our clothes to church, which to me is crazy. I think I should be able to wear shorts and a t-shirt to church, which is that God doesn't care. And that's why I got traumatized having to wear fussy clothes for church is because it didn't make sense to my body. But the parental expectation, the grand parental expectation was there. Okay, so long-winded, hopefully not too um, 
not too accusatory and really kind reflection on some things I've inherited from my parents. Because I know mom will listen and I don't know if dad will. Um, but so much love to you all. You have been incredible parents. Um, and the best thing about this is it's no one's fault. It's like, guess where the original trauma came from? The original trauma came from the fact that life is hard, that life is incredibly hard, that we have to struggle to eat. We have to struggle to drink water. We have to struggle to survive in the wild. And so humans throughout time have had to struggle just to stay alive, and we still do, even though some of us are removed from it. But that's why we have trauma. It's because the world is a world of entropy, chaos, and disorder. And of course, there will be trauma. And so my proposal then is that we all have this inherited family trauma. I hope you've been convinced by this case, but if it's too much to digest in one sitting, just I hope I've opened your mind and that maybe you'll come back to it next time you have a problem that can't be explained. My thesis here is when you have anxiety, depression, scared reactions, fight or flight reactions, etc., that are not explainable by your direct surroundings or your genetics, it's inherited legacy trauma, and that's a specific disease. And we got to all treat it, the whole world. That's why my $50 million of my $100 million grant are going to that, the part that doesn't go directly to humanitarian aid and feeding people and giving them water um, and curing diseases, you know? Because um, I think this disease of trauma is killing the affluent people and making us still unhappy. And then we don't use our potential and our privilege to make the world a better place. You all should know that that's my platform by now, is that um, I think... People of affluence, which I consider myself definitely to be one, have so much capacity to change the world for the better, but we're bottlenecked by this legacy family trauma. So if you've stuck with me, that's a lot of stuff. Now let me close with the good stuff, which is the answer. And I alluded to this in my therapy session in my talk with my dog. The answer is, <laughs> oh God, this is going to sound corny. The answer is unconditional love. And... Let me explain why. Let me make the airtight, in my opinion. But of course, again, I'm here touching the sand on Mars. Is there sand on Mars? I'm here exploring feeling it. You don't have to take my word. I want you to come join me in the sand, try it, and you can go back from Mars to Earth if you don't like it, uh, to suit my analogy. You know, come think for yourself, try for yourself. But I'm going to lay the groundwork, the groundwork in my path. Unconditional love is the answer. Lock it in. Final answer double jeopardy, put all my money on it, million dollar question, you know, with my life on the line and a gun to my head, tell me what the solution to the world's problem is, unconditional love and trauma therapy techniques. And they're the same thing, because guess what trauma therapy is? It's just all about unconditional love. That's all it is. Trauma therapy, my therapist is the most unconditionally loving person, and they set aside an hour to specifically be that way, and I am always safe there. But let me explain a little bit about how I have read about mental health and stuff versus a theory that actually just explains things perfectly and proves everything that I've ever been feeling and validates everything. So when I went and watched this dog show today, I came to my computer right before this podcast and I said, huh, I'm going to pause and save this just so I don't lose this because I could not bear to lose this. Okay, we're back. Saved. So we won't lose the podcast for you guys. Um, so... I watched my dog documentary and cried and cried and had a catharsis and was like, yes, this biological thing that I am calling unconditional love, this feeling of connectedness that makes everything else seem less important and yet also makes everything else go better. 
that just makes everything right when I feel it with my dog. It's related to some brain chemicals or some neurological pathways. And although I'm using this goo-goo, woo-woo word, unconditional love, I am also a scientist at heart. And so I came to the computer and said, science, show me the answer. Tell me what the chemical is, where it is, and how I can get more of it. And I alluded to this because I researched oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins, and said, hey, these are like the four categories, according to, you know, like Harvard or Yale Medical of happy chemicals. And I looked them up. But honestly, when you look up these neurotransmitters, all you find are a bunch of inconclusive studies that show that, yes, medication can help a little bit. They're specific, again, like SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, that help, and they help me amazingly. So yes, there's medicine that can intervene, but tinkering much with your medicine is extremely dangerous. There's only so much dose you can go on. For example, dopamine is a happy chemical in the brain, and there are precursors to this neurotransmitter that turn into dopamine that you can buy over the counter. It's called HTP5, and it's some blah, 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 molecule thingy thing that turns into dopamine in your brain. But what they find is that if you take that, you build up a tolerance to it, just like an external drug, just like a heroin, although obviously not potentially as unhealthy, and that it can lead to fatal side effects in the long term. Now, that's very, very rare. So if you're on HTP5, don't worry. I'm sure it's very rare, but that's just you know how the internet always tells you the rarest, most horrible thing. But my point is, I looked up all these neurotransmitters, and I was like, uh, trying to understand in terms of chemicals is not working because everything is too complicated. I can't just give my brain more oxytocin. You know, like I looked, I, I tell Google, I say, hey, Google, tell me how to live my life, which hilariously does not always work as it didn't this time. And Google said, well, if you want more neurotransmitters, you could exercise more or touch someone else or hug them or have sex. Oh, we just got PG-13. Ah, uh, I think sex can be PG if it's approached the right way. So we'll leave it at that, right? I'm not saying anything untoward. Um, but basically... Um, yeah, it told me to do some of these physically pleasing activities. But if doing these physically pleasing activities were the answer, just, you know, hitting the buttons on our triggers and, you know, just pressing the right button for the right chemical and putting it in our brains, why do we all still have problems? Shouldn't we all be taking supplements and, you know, our medication should be solving everything and we'd all just exercise perfectly and eat healthy so that our tryptophan kicked into our dopamine system. And then we felt pleasure because we had a complex carbohydrate with our tryptophan. You can tell I went down a rabbit hole here, right? But I really looked it up and it's like, oh, the research and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And even the research on dogs said, you know, this oxytocin love chemical, it's not the magic chemical either. Sometimes dogs don't show this chemical with humans and humans don't show it with dogs any elevation. And sometimes oxytocin makes us form clicks and be negative to other people. So my point with telling you all this is that our brain is too interconnected for things to be thought of as just, oh, give me more of this chemical, my life is solved. If that would solve our problems, humanity's problems would be solved. But guess what? I look at a world where technology improves every day, food improves every day, Quality of life physically improves drastically every day for people around the world, all 8 billion of us now. And yet human mental health does not improve on a generational basis. It doesn't. I really don't think that outside of the creature comforts keeping us alive more, that humans are that much happier than we were a generation ago or two. And particularly, I find it astonishing that so many people like me, affluent, 
privileged people with a good environment and good parents can end up with severe anxiety disorders, yet the facts from the CDC on suicide attempts, suicides, mental health disorders state that millions of us all across our country and billions of people across the globe suffer from serious mental health disorders. So, obviously, our science on mental health is not solving the problem. And by that, I just mean the approach of just, oh, maybe talk a little bit, do a little drug or this, or just get over it, which is the main approach, right? I mean, I have great respect for talk therapy and drugs, which I use both of, you know, in the appropriate manner. But it's obviously not solving the problem. Why? My answer is because we all have the disease of inherited family trauma, which is passed to us through biological cues and facial expressions that our parents give us from birth throughout our whole life and the other people in our life give us, not just parents, but but parents, you know, are the main caretakers often. And that these things are inherited and they come down from generation to generation. And this relationship has been unchanged throughout human history. And if humankind wants to be happier and have more well-being, we have to change this relationship by treating this disease. A great example is diabetes. You know, people used to die of type 1 diabetes all the time. And then they found out, oh, people have low blood sugar. They need to eat sugar or they need to maintain this or that. You know, they need to monitor their sugar. But until they developed, you know, uh, what chemical insulin or, you know, like isolated and refined insulin itself as a injectable thing for type 1 diabetes, people were at risk of just dying at any point from diabetes. And it was just the death that you couldn't escape, you know, back a couple hundred years ago. It was a certain death in some ways. You just could not live with that disease. And guess what? We developed the treatment, insulin. And now, you know, I'm not a type 1 diabetic, so I can't claim to know the pains and struggles and challenges of having to prick yourself every day and worry about your blood sugar and worry if you're going to have a crash and constantly deal with, like, having your pump or your whatever. Um, I know that's not a walk in the park. But I also know that the standard of life for diabetics is immensely larger than it was 200 years ago. Whereas the standard of life for legacy family trauma disease, which all of us have, I think unconditionally every human being has it, the standard of care is the same, which is we don't know and we all suffer from it. And that's why suicide is one of the leading causes of death in developed countries, you know, among young people, short of like car crashes, I think. It's the second leading cause among most young people. And, you know, just short of accidents. And that's why. It's because I would attribute suicide deaths to legacy family trauma and societal, legacy societal trauma, environment, bullying, whatever you want to call it. But it's a disease that needs treatment. And I was discouraged because the modern way of thinking about drugs and chemicals and neurotransmitters doesn't actually offer me a way to solve this or a way to explain what this love is. But I promise I'm getting close to the end, but I hope you're riveted. This is like the answer, guys. I'm riveted. I have been talking into a microphone for an hour and three minutes, and I'm more excited than when I started. So if you're not riveted, maybe this is not the podcast for you, okay? Maybe you should go somewhere else, because this is the coolest thing in the world, okay? And I'm going to be like a dog and wag my tail and love it. Anyway, then all of a sudden, I heard from these people... I joined these trauma recovery groups. I joined a mental health group that's specifically to recover from legacy trauma, 
where you talk about your past and you talk about your parents' past and your grandparents' past, not to judge them. You give unconditional love to the people in your life. You accept them. It's about giving more love to your parents and grandparents and, you know, teachers and whoever was in charge of you. It's about giving love, but also acknowledging where the legacy trauma has hit you. And so I've been in this group and done it, and I've talked about all these things, and somebody in this group talked about something called polyvagal theory. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like another weird scientific theory I don't care about. And then, you know, my sister-in-law, Pavithra, started talking about this. And she was like, huh, Woody, you should look up polyvagal theory. And I did what most people who hear me talk about it now will probably do, which I said, "Uh, I don't have any trauma. I have a perfect life. I just need to make more money and get a better job and get a better car and just, you know, have a, like, better everything, and then I'll be happy. I don't have any trauma. (laughs) Sorry to put that voice on, but if I'm making fun of anyone, it's myself. Because that was me my whole life until, like, last year at this time. And then finally, after my, someone's told me about this, and my sister-in-law has told me, and everybody has told me polyvagal theory, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm recovering from this trauma stuff. I guess I'll learn what this polyvagal theory is. And now let me explain this theory, which has a lot of scientific paper backing. Some people still debate it, but to me, I'm like, I'm here on Mars, feeling the Mars dust. Polyvagal theory perfectly explains everything that's happening to me and is a solution to all my problems. So I'm going to tell it to you in case it solves all your problems. Um, Here's what polyvagal theory says. Ready for this? Um, That initially, I'm not even going to go into the background. We'll just say it as simply as possible. And also, by the way, my editor did a good job of getting this out of my book because it would have been too weedsy and sciencey to explain in my book, Help, I'm Overwhelmed. But I've got to talk about it here because it's so important. Um, but it's not the right topic for my first book. So I'm glad Sarah Loy helped me get that out of the first book because it didn't belong. Um, but here's polyvagal theory. It says this. We'll skip how, why, and how we know this. We'll just skip to what it says. You can research it. It says, your body has three states. It has a state of, oh, not even going to use technical jargon. It has the state of being frozen. Like when you see a possum play dead, that's the frozen state. You know, a possum actually doesn't play at being dead. It involuntarily faints because it is so scared of a predator and it needs to play dead in order to have a small chance that it will survive by being uninteresting. It's a last ditch evolutionary mechanism for survival. It's called dissociation, but we'll just call it playing dead or freezing. So you have this freeze response that is just like, I am overwhelmed, I'm trapped in a corner, I can't get out, I'm dead, I'm toast, play possum. And it is the worst feeling on earth, and it's where our deepest traumas go. Because when you think about, let's say, um, you know, victims of like rape survivors, for example, would experience strong feelings of being dissociated from their body because they've just experienced an extremely tragic occurrence. They did not deserve it, they did not ask for in any way that is just this grievous like trauma inflicted on them um, that, I mean, it's just such a shame that that exists in our society. But that's why people who have experienced severe traumas like that say that they are feeling dissociated from their body. They feel like they're having an out-of-body experience. They're just walking around. They're not feeling alive. That's freezing. And that's what your body does to keep you alive when the emotions are literally too much to handle or the physical stimulus is literally too much to handle, right? Like if you experience enough pain, what do you do? You faint. If you experience enough emotional shock, you know, at least in the TV shows, you faint. And that's because your body knows that you cannot handle it. You're in so much pain, it just shuts you off. 
and this has immense long-term negative health consequences. Possums that play dead retain all the trauma of being almost killed. They get injured, they get hurt, but they're more likely to survive, so their body does it. Now, the second thing we can experience as a bodily state, I know that one doesn't sound great, but there's more bad news, is a fight-or-flight state. See, you might have heard of this fight-or-flight more often than the freeze. Fight-or-flight is what happens when, you know, like... I say leopard because my other screensaver as I record this is a is a leopard or something sitting on a log. Um, fight or flight happens when you're unsafe and it's your body's first response to get you out of an unsafe situation. So if I am in the jungle and a leopard, you know, is stalking me and I, I'm walking in the jungle on a tropical tour and a leopard appears 20 feet away from me, my body is immediately going to kick into fight or flight. It's going to say, Woody. You could die. This thing could eat you. You need to either run away or you need to fight it off, right? And usually the instinct, it's different in everybody. But isn't that what would happen if you encountered, let's say, a bear maybe as a more realistic example in the woods? You're hiking and a bear comes out, you know, or a little bobcat or a wildcat, you know, comes out. What do you do? You either try to do a fight response and scare it off, right? With a bell, you know, like they say, oh, shake a bear, make a lot of noise. That's an example of fighting, making yourself look scary so that the scary thing goes away and you're safe again. Or you try to flee and slowly back away, or you just try to run screaming away, you know? But the point is, you're in danger, something's trying to eat you, so you either flee or you fight it. And only if neither of those are an option do you go into the freeze, right? Like if that bobcat is hunting a possum, no clue if bobcats hunt possums, but if the bobcat is hunting a possum, then that possum is like, oh shoot, I'm not fast enough to get away. It's already getting me in its claws. It's going to get me. So it just plays dead. And then maybe the predatory cat says, uh, this thing looks dead. And why is that good? Because diseased meat can be unhealthy, right? Just like you don't want to eat spoiled meat in your fridge if it smells funky and looks rotten. An animal in the wild does not want to eat rotten meat that's been dead, you know? So if an animal, if a possum senses the predator is coming and it plays dead, the animal might think, oh, I don't want to take the risk that this is rotten meat, so I won't eat it. So there's an evolutionary reason for this, is my point. It is helpful to freeze up, even though it's very painful. And so that's the other state we can be in. And then there's a third state we can be in, which is why I'm coming around to this unconditional love stuff. It is what... Um, it is what the person who created this theory and did all the science on it, um, Stephen Porges, I think is his name. He calls it the pro-social or the social and engaged and playful situation. It's called the social, socially engaged biology. And now you can look up all the science. This guy's got this explanation of how fish 500 million years ago, blah, 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 300 million years ago, evolution, evolution, da, 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 da. We've got these three neural pathways. One goes to our like lower body, one goes to the mid body, one goes in our throat. And those three pathways correspond to this three thing. There, I just gave you the science. You can read a whole book, but I just gave it to you in like 10 seconds. So there you go. But the point is that there is a quote unquote happy state. But notice that this Porges guy didn't call it the happy state. He didn't call it the well-being state. He didn't call it the, you know, the good state, the you know, okay state. He called it the socially engaged state. He calls it social activated. The scientific name doesn't really matter, but 
It's the social state. Now, why is this so important and how does it connect to this message of love? Well, guess what happens when a person or any being, but could be a person, a dog, could be a possum, when a being feels completely safe and like it doesn't have to fight or flee, it doesn't have to freeze, a being is totally, totally safe and it has nothing making it feel unsafe, guess what it does? It naturally plays and connects with other beings. Naturally. That is biologically what happens and it is proven and there are a million studies that show that you know, we'll just say human beings since that's my goal is to help, uh, you know, I hope that it's mostly human beings listening to this. You know, if a dog is listening, you know, maybe this will help you somehow. Maybe the sound of my voice will make you feel soothed and connected. But since my audience consists mostly of human beings and some Martians, um, since I'm on Mars now, according to my analogy, um, human beings are social creatures. You know, studies show that when people are put in solitary confinement, their mental health immediately plummets, right? That if people are in isolation, I mean, hello, like COVID pandemic, anybody? When people are in isolation, they go crazy. And it doesn't matter how, when, what, or why. The inability to be in the presence of other human beings causes extreme psychological distress because our bodies are made to connect above all else. That is just a biological fact. And it helps because then we help each other. We do better things that help each other And then our whole tribe or our whole group succeeds, and then we're all happy and we're all safe, right? So it has an evolutionary purpose to keep us together and to keep us safe and to keep us fed and clothed and sheltered. But thankfully, it also feels amazing. It feels absolutely amazing to connect. And you know that because you've felt the feeling of connection with your pet. If you have ever felt a connection with an animal, I encourage you to tap into that. And I say that because... Humans have this unfortunate problem of our crazily complex social systems, which almost always lead to mental trauma. And so humans, we got issues with each other. But just picture you sitting with your dog. And, you know, when I sit with Willie, I know he's not going to bite me. I'm 100% sure. Now, he's an animal. If I touched him in a spot he was really sore, he might nip at me. But I know with him I'm totally safe, that there is no chance that he's going to attack me, you know, because he's just giving all the cues of safety. And I'm giving him all the cues of safety. And we just love each other. And I just sat and cried today. And my life was so good and so amazing. And just, I was like, this is the life. And you know what else I thought? And this has happened every time I felt this feeling. And this is why I love the love definition from this Netflix episode. Is every time this happens, I think, I don't give a darn about accomplishment, about social status, about money, about anything as long as I can feel this love. Nothing else matters. But what I also see is that the moment I feel that way, I instantly start giving love to others, doing things for others. I've got such an abundance of energy that I want to help others because that also benefits me. I mean, think of it. If I am feeling amazing and loved, and the best feeling on earth is connecting to more people, then I can use my surplus energy to help other people feel less stressed so that then they can feel safe and then they can feel connected with me and then I get more connection, which makes me feel better, which makes me and the other person wanna go connect with two more people. And then there's four of us and then there's eight and then 16 and you know how exponential things go. Before long, there's eight billion people. 
hopping and bopping and grooving and happy. And so while you might say that, um, that that's a pie-in-the-sky dream, I've just basically shown you the science. This polyvagal theory says, let me wrap it up with a little bit of the science. Polyvagal's theory says, safety above all else. That it is not, to me, an active state of loving. I'm always wanting to love, but I cannot access the series of neural networks in my brain that is called the ventral vagal state, that is the one that is the social playful state, if I am activated into fight or flight or freezing. So what I'm saying is that love is not necessarily something I actively do. Love is what I always am if I'm completely safe. So that's how I view love, is it's not just a deep feeling of connectedness that makes everything else seem less important, but it's also a deep feeling of connectiveness that makes everything else seem less important and makes other girls' goals not as stressful, that reduces stress, that makes me feel amazing, that also happens to make me have better outcomes across the board, that also motivates me to help other people, and that also like turns everything for the best, and it's a natural state. I guess that's where I was trying to get, is it's not just a thing, it is my natural state. And so I would argue that every being born has that natural state of unconditional love, but due to human ability to transmit legacy trauma, and in other animals, I'm sure the same thing happens, right? That the parents are scared for survival, the kids don't have to worry about that, but the kids get the parents' survival fears, and so on and so on. But my point is that humans also have this. We get it from our parents, we get it from our teachers, we get it from all the people in our lives. When we interact with them, we also interact with their legacy trauma. And thus, we need, in order to feel loved, you can't just go and say, I'm going to pet my dog and feel loved forever. Because if you're having trauma reactions to things, eventually, the negative stimulus will outweigh the positive and suck you back into fight or flight or frozen. It will because your body knows that if you die, it doesn't get to feel any love. And your body is accurately trying to save you from danger. But where your body is miscalibrated is that as a human being with privilege, you are usually safe now. Not always. And of course, there are tragedies all over the world. And in the States, there are mass shootings. There are things... But what I'm saying is that on an average day, on average, you are completely safe. In your home, on average, you're completely safe physically. Although there are definitely people who are being abused and people who are being, you know, suffering from trauma. But we don't ever feel it. And love is not something we do, but love is the removal of the fear of unsafety. And so what is my answer? What am I going to do now that I have access to this? Well, I'm going to keep going back to trauma therapy over and over again, because all I want is more of this safety. When I wrote in my book, Help, I'm Overwhelmed, that the only thing, the main thing that matters to me is feeling relief. What I really mean is feeling safety, because if I feel relief and safety from the parts of my body that are fight or flighting or that are freezing, I automatically feel socially engaged love that does amazing things across the board guaranteed. I have never seen it not work in my personal experience. And if you have an opposition to that, my argument is that you're not actually feeling it, that you're acting out of fight or flight or frozen. Because when I feel this love, I just told you that when I feel this love, even if someone's making fun of me and hurting me, my inclination on how to live is to set a boundary so they can't hurt me. 
and still love them and shake their hand. And if they're emotionally abusing me, say, hey, I'm not dealing with this anymore, but I still love you. I wish you the best. It'll all be okay. And then walk out. If someone's physically amusing me, get away. Definitely don't tolerate that behavior. Get out of it and still love them anyway. And guess what else is evident from the fact that I have spent an hour and 20 minutes sitting here talking to you today with no guarantee that anyone will listen to this. On average, my downloads have been about eight so far. And I am telling what I think is the world's secret to the eight people listening to this. Shout out if you're one of them. Leave me a rating, please. Um, I'm telling this to the eight people listening and the one dog listening and the two Martians listening because all I want is another person to live in this with me. My trauma therapist does this with me. My therapist does this with me. The people who are trained professionals in this help me. My support group people do. I've got the ability to show you how to do this. That's why I published a book. Yeah, I want some money for myself. I want to make a living. But the truth is, I've got enough money from Preetha's job. And as a home spouse, we've got enough to live on. And she's happy in her career. So I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because my wish is selfishly socially engagedly, that if I present this to you in the kindest, best manner, that maybe you will go to more therapy and you will do trauma healing and you will get on board with this point of view. And then guess what? We can have social, proactive, interactive love with each other, just like dogs. And we can walk up to each other and wag. And we can walk up to each other and just be happy. And we don't have to worry about all the little things in life because we're just being happy because that's what we are naturally going to do if we're safe. But the key is safety. Trauma therapy techniques make you feel safe. You've got to get your external environment safe. You've got to ask for physical help to get out of unsafe situations. You've got to ask for all the help you need. That's why I wrote a book about it. If you don't have the book, check out the book. You know, little plug there because I genuinely think it's worth your $10 or $4, depending on whether you buy Kindle or the paper version. Um, yeah. So I guess that's what I've got to say. To summarize this very long podcast which may be the most important thing I've ever said to the world, um, is all of us have legacy-inherited trauma. It is a disease, in my opinion, just like diabetes, that is without fail passed from parent to child because of our ability to sense unsafe social cues and passed also from people to other people, just generally. And that because we are naturally sensitive to unsafe cues for our safety, and because the world has so many cues in it, we naturally get stuck in a fight or flight or freeze mode. And even the smallest simple thing like an everyday criticism can make us freeze up and have a panic attack because we have that legacy trauma. It's not about the current situation, unless the current situation is genuinely a traumatic situation. It's about the legacy trauma. We escape that through trauma therapy. We apply polyvagal theory, seeking tons of help to be safe and regulated. We use our pets. We use all the safe people we can find. We build a huge network of safe people. If you want to know what to do, it, besides the worksheet in my book, I'm coming out with a new worksheet, and it's going to be just a chart of your relationships. And if you measure the number of people in your life you feel completely safe around, that's your indicator. That's it. You want to know the solution to life? Get as many people as possible that you feel completely safe around who are trauma-informed, who understand this issue, who understand. And that's why criticism, suggestions, feedback, all this stuff, even when it's constructive, is often useless. Another last thing I'll say is that another thing my editor got me to mince the words on a little bit or, or soften the words on 
is that every time I write a book, when I write a draft or a blog, I find myself writing, criticism is worthless, even constructive criticism. And then, of course, someone tells me, Woody, that's BS. Constructive criticism is how you get better. And I have to acquiesce and say, yeah, that's true. But here's what I know. Constructive criticism only has value if someone is safe. And if someone is not safe, that criticism, even if it's spot on, might actually harm them. And so what I recommend is go out of your way to give people love and kindness and safety. If you spent your whole life seeking help and safety for yourself and giving it to others, you'll never have to worry about doing something well or right again. That's how powerful love is. It's the power of unconditional love. It comes from our dogs. It comes from our therapists. It comes from each other. Hopefully a little came from me to you. Yeah, I think that's it. So anyway, I've just told you everything I know in a nutshell. I'm constantly documenting. I'm here at the frontier. I've told you everything I know. I've put it all in this podcast. Call me crazy, but I think I have the answer. I really do. And it's not because I'm a genius. It's because I've gotten so much help and there are other trauma-informed people saying this. I just think I am a particularly impassioned advocate. And so I am trying to take this message to the masses. And I'm also just built this way to do this work. So hope you enjoyed this episode. Quite a long episode, but I had a blast recording it. Hope you had a blast being part of it. And if you want to get help from me, I'm going to be doing great specials on this in the new year. I'm going to be offering super cheap umbrella person services where I take you through how to build your social network and how to help you find all the other support groups and therapists you need. I'm a special type of coach who does that. Big, huge web page and video coming out about it in the new year. Look forward to it. Sign up for the free resources. Get the book. Yes, I believe in what I'm preaching because I'm giving you the personal examples. I've literally told you what happened to me today. So there's my evidence. Take it or leave it. I don't care. Think for yourself. Try for yourself. You know, I love you all so much and wish you a great day. Have a good one.